Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is another episode of the Government Coins Podcast. Sorry for the delay. Y'all was having a few technical difficulties over here. However, we are here nonetheless, and we are going to get into it. Listen, so today we have a conversation around disparity studies. And a lot of business owners have seen emails come out from their local cities uh, or counties who are participating in these disparity studies. But you know, you usually just skip past that email because it's not talking about contracting opportunities. But today we are going to talk about the importance of actually participating and being actively engaged and why disparity studies exist and why they're important. So we have an amazing guest today. Her name is Colette Holt. Colette focuses on doing this work. She's been doing this work for, you know what, Colette, I'm gonna let you tell it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll talk more about the business side of it later. Sure, I'd be happy to and, and thank you for having me. And uh, this is a good opportunity to talk to people about the issues about disparity studies, which really uh, become legal issues at the end of the day. Um, so I'll try not to be too, too lawyer-like, um, but um, I think it's just really critical for minority and women-owned businesses uh, to understand what the legal landscape is and how to support efforts uh, to increase opportunities uh, for uh, minority women businesses, which I'll just call MWBEs. I mean, one thing about this area is that it's kind of the alphabet soup. So we have MBEs, minority businesses, women businesses, WBEs, DBEs, that's disadvantaged business enterprises, usually people mean in the uh, US Department of Transportation program, but not always. There are hubs, HUB, historically underutilized businesses. There's 8A, there's 8D. So WSOB, I mean, there's all sorts of acronyms. So. Um, I will I will try not to get uh, uh, into that too much, or at least explain the terms as I'm as I'm going. But anyway, a little bit about us. Um, I have been a lawyer involved in issues related to minority contracting since actually the late '80s. Uh, I started out when I was an assistant corporation counsel for the city of Chicago, and a decision came down from the Supreme Court called City of Richmond versus Croson, the Croson case. Uh, some of your listeners have probably heard of, of this. And it was a decision that upended what had been many decades of settled law. So you know, the Supreme Court overturning itself is nothing new. Um, it just seems like it may be the last couple of years, um, but they have been very activists for a very long time. Uh, and the Croson case told us that we had to uh, gather statistical and anecdotal evidence of discrimination uh, in the business uh, market in order to justify having a race and gender conscious contracting program. Up until that point, uh, we had all thought that programs that were designed to remedy discrimination, to address the continuing effects and impacts of slavery, were subject to less judicial review than, let's say, the poll tax. Um, but in an opinion by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who's looking downright radical these days, uh, the court said, no, no, you, you, you really just can't assume that, oh, I don't know, Black people in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, um, might be suffering from discrimination. Uh, and so the entire disparity study industry uh, was born. And I've been working on these, these programs ever since. Um, I'm now uh, based out of San Antonio, Texas, but I'm really from Chicago. So if anybody's seen me or heard me talk before and you're like, what do you mean Texas? Um, but uh, I married a Texas boy a few years ago and um, moved down here. And it's, it's a real interesting place uh, to do this work. 
Although one thing that I think often surprises people is that some of the strongest, most aggressive, longstanding MWBE programs in this country are in Texas. Not the West Coast, not California, not Seattle, Texas. So, um, and which I do frankly attribute, which I think might be a question I could see forming in your head, why might that be? Um, and that is because these programs really are the result of black political power. Um, that's why we have strong programs in Chicago, in Philly, uh, in Dallas, in Houston, in Austin, in San Antonio, um, and uh, in communities that have large uh, minority populations, and frankly, especially black populations um, as the real leaders in the history of civil rights. So anyway, um, I digress, I guess, but um, that's how I got involved in this. And I have been working on disparity studies really ever, ever since. Um, and I'm happy to talk about where we are with studies, but I also wanna spend some time talking about what's going on in the courts and why I think the landscape is shifting very, very rapidly. And minority women-owned businesses need to understand that and start thinking about what that might mean for your individual business going forward. And I love that point. And we, before we ever get into you know, the opportunity, I think we should kind of just start there. Mm -hmm. uh, start with what's going on in the courts because that is very powerful at this moment. And I feel like it's a conversation that people need to hear immediately. Um, and then we'll get to the other stuff later. Yeah, well, I, I, th I think they need to hear it immediately too because um, I, I, it's unfortunately fairly clear to me uh, that these programs are under increasing attack um, some people might know that uh, Arkansas, which didn't have anything going on much anyway, but still um, had uh, recently passed legislation under their new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who some of you may remember as Donald Trump's first press secretary and the daughter of um, uh, Mike Huckabee, who was governor before and ran for president. Um, but Arkansas has just adopted legislation that prohibits essentially affirmative action in the state. Uh, it's very similar to what uh, had, was enacted in California of all places. So, so much for the woke West Coast. Uh, over 30 years ago, uh, a constitutional amendment called Proposition 209 that effectively outlawed affirmative action in California. Uh, and that has been the state of the law since. Um, and that we, we tried to get Prop 209 overturned two years ago with another proposition called Prop 16. Uh, and I was involved on, in that effort. And unfortunately, we failed. Um, and we failed rather spectacularly. We lost about 55 to 45, which in a statewide referendum is a pretty resounding defeat. Um, so Arkansas modeled itself after California. So, so much for the don't California my whatever. You see that a lot in Texas, by the way, don't California my Texas. Um, but uh, the, the, the courts have become increasingly conservative. And about the only good thing that I can personally say from the Dobbs decision, um, you know, uh, finding that women have no constitutional right to privacy in their own bodies, um, is that when I was kept saying to people for a few years now, the courts are going to start taking away rights that we considered long established. And people go, oh no, that can't happen. Well, yes, it can. Uh, and yes, it is. And my prediction, sad to say, is that yes, it will. So some, uh, some things to keep in mind. There are two cases pending right now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. 
uh, both brought by the same group, Students for Fair Admissions. Uh, one is against the undergraduate admissions program at Harvard, and the other is against the undergraduate admissions program at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and uh, these are purported groups, and I can get to that in a second, of Asian American students who claim that uh, both universities' attempts to increase the representation of Black and Latino students unconstitutionally discriminates against them. Uh, now, some, some background about this. Um, students for Fair Admission is basically a group that was put together by the plaintiff's attorneys. So this wasn't something that organically came up. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind um, that it isn't as if there's some great groundswell in the Asian American communities um, against affirmative action. This was kind of a, salt, a, a, a artificially created group. Um, and there was some attempt uh, at the lower court levels to make that argument that in fact, that this isn't real. Um, and at least I know in the Harvard case, uh, they didn't actually ever put on any Asian American applicant who could say that he or she was injured by, uh, by the application process, but um, they are uh, represented uh, by uh, some of these very conservative, I'm just gonna call them right-wing uh, legal uh, organizations. Uh, and they are extraordinarily well-funded. Uh, probably the most prominent one is a group called the Federalist Society, uh, which in and of itself doesn't sue anybody, but has become a, a network over the last 30 plus years uh, to groom and promote uh, conservative lawyers um, into uh, uh, federal court clerkships in, in, onto the federal bench into academic positions. Um, and all three of Trump's nominees, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, uh, were all Federal Society members um, and all came out of that pipeline, as have most of Trump's uh, over 270 appointees during his term. Uh, so the Federal Society received a donation recently of $1.6 billion. That's with a B. You can buy a lot of litigation with a billion and a half dollars, a lot of it. Um, and so I don't think people should kid themselves that uh, these people are not very well-funded and very well-organized with um, probably the most um, uh, immediate uh, uh, impact being these two cases in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, the plaintiffs lost uh, at both trial court levels um, and Harvard also, so, so the defendants won, the programs were upheld, because I should put it in the positive, that, that's where lawyers speak about plaintiffs are the ones who carry their, their burdens, so you always talk about that, but, but, but I think for this purpose, we should say that the programs were upheld, um, and uh, Harvard's program was upheld at the appellate level, so there was an appeal taken, uh, and the Court of Appeals upheld Harvard's program. So generally speaking, that's a very good posture to go to the Supreme Court. And most of the time, they won't even take those cases. Supreme Court only hears maybe 80 cases a year. So lay people are always all, what about the Supremes? But you know, practicing lawyers are at least as interested as what's going on in the Court of Appeals, because that's where the vast majority of litigation is going to end. Um, and then North Carolina had also, UNC, had also won at the trial court level. Um, and of course, the, the plaintiffs, the, the anti-affirmative action folks appealed. And this is one of the signals that we read, you know, reading tea leaves from, from SCOTUS uh, to really play inside baseball there, um, is that the court took 
the Supreme Court took the appeal directly from the trial court. So there is no court of appeals opinion in the UNC case. Now, this is not unprecedented, but it's extremely unusual. Um, usually the, the Supreme Court wants to wait, see what did the appellate court say, get you know, the record fully developed. Not this time. Uh, these folks were able to convince five justices to just skip that step and let's just get right to it, which I take means let's get right to dismantling these programs because there's, other, oh, there's no reason to be doing this. You would wait and let it play out. So uh, the opinion, the court, the um, uh, cases were argued in October. If anybody's interested, you can go to the Supreme Court website and you can listen to the arguments. Um, they don't let them fill them, but but you can listen now. Um, and it's really quite instructive uh, where where at least five justices are going. And of course, that's all you need, um, you know, to kind of do head count. Uh, justices Alito and Clarence Thomas. Um, have been on record for decades now as opposing any kind of affirmative action. Um, and, and in fact, Justice Thomas has uh, said in many, many occasions in many different um, arenas and, and conferences and whatnot over, over the last, well, it's 30 years now, actually, um, that he feels that affirmative action harms Black people um, and that although he was certainly the beneficiary of it, uh, that uh, it imposes a stigma um, and that we should just do away with it. Um, Justice Alito has felt the same way. Um, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh did not ever weigh in on this issue directly, but when they were both lawyers at the Department of Justice as staff attorneys, uh, they wrote a memo saying that they believe that at least the U.S. Department of Transportation disadvantaged business enterprise program is unconstitutional reverse discrimination against white men. Um, and we have certainly held up the DBE program as the kind of platinum standard of programs. So if the Congress, which has granted specific authority in the constitution to address the continuing impact of chattel slavery, does not have the authority to do that, query as to whether or not lower level governments that um, you know, like the state or a county or something would have the ability to do that. So that's four. Now let's turn to Justice Barrett. And of course, during her confirmation hearings, uh, almost all the uh, emphasis and attention was on her record on reproductive rights, as was, of course, correct. So there's not a lot of attention paid about other civil rights issues. Um, but I just offer you two tidbits that at least to me suggest where she probably will go. You know, anybody who tells you for sure they know is, is lying to you, but, but probably will go, is that while she did not write this opinion, she did join in it that held that being called the N-word at work is not per se a hostile work environment. Well, I don't know about the rest of anybody, but I certainly would consider it to be a hostile work environment if it were my work environment. Um, and they ended up ruling against the, the plaintiff and that individual in that case. And, oh, you know, he was a bad employee. And so, you know, I guess that made it okay, more or less. So that's at least a signal about where she might be going. And then the other thing I thought was really interesting, and this is just my very personal take on it. So take it for what it's worth. The other things I'm saying, I'm much more as a, as a true practicing lawyer for 35 years in this business, um, is that, you know, in the, in the confirmation hearings, the, the, the nominees introduced and they talk about their family and where they're from and, and they want to be human, you know, humanize them. Great. 
super standard stuff. But I was very struck by the fact that when Justice Barrett talked about her white children, she talked about their athletic prowess primarily, excuse me, their academic prowess. But she has two adopted black children that were adopted from Haiti. And there she talked more about their athletic prowess. And that signaled to me a set of attitudes about who black people are, where are our gifts, that was disturbing to me. Can't put anything else on it, um, but we otherwise we don't have a lot of signals from her, um, but certainly we don't see anything that makes us think that she's gonna rule in favor of the affirmative action programs. That's five, we just lost. So yes, it's great Justice you know, Jackson is there, I mean, I, I cried that day. I mean, you can imagine um, for a black woman lawyer um, to see her there, it was just, it was truly something I, I never expected to live, to see. Um, but I also know that it was just a swap out. Uh, and, you know, we got, we lost Justice Breyer and we got her, but that didn't give us any more votes really. So it's all really deeply concerning. Um, we, we should get a decision this term, which will be over the 30th of June. So we're down to a month um, to wait for this now. Um, and it's possible that they'll put it over another term, but they've already put them over one term. So I think this is coming. They tend to release the most controversial decisions on the last day of the term, as you may remember from last year with Dobbs. The leak had come earlier, but the decision arrived on June 30. So we're gonna know really soon um, where, you know, where the court is going with this, which does take me to our topic today about but let me stop there. Do you, you, you have any questions or comments so far? Because otherwise I'd just round me, wind me up and I'll just keep talking. Okay, well, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I appreciate the opinion on that for sure. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about, you know, where you think this is going and what next steps we should, you know, should start looking. Right. What do we need to do to be proactive? So I'm, I'm, I, I take the first opportunity to basically scare everybody um, because I think people should really be afraid. I mean, this is my life's work. So I, I don't, if I sound flippant or casual, I, I, it, I have to find some way emotionally to deal with this because I think I'm about to watch everything I've spent my professional life fighting for is for sure under siege today. That There's no question about that part, but that we might effectively be losing the war um, is, is as distressing um, as, as, it, as, it, as it can possibly get. Um, so, you know, maybe after we get a decision, maybe if you want me to come back, we can talk about what that will actually turn out to say, because it matters deeply how far they go. They might just say, but well, we have problems with this in the higher ed context. Um, because it, in truth, the, the, uh, the, the legal standard in higher education has always been much lower than in public contracting. In, in, in education, it's higher ed, now, this is different than elementary and secondary. So really, let, let's be sure we're focused on higher education. The standard has really become diversity. You know, the value of a diverse student body and a diverse campus and having lots of different kinds of people with lots of different kinds of ideas from all over. Um, and uh, Harvard and UNC both adapt what uh, in the academics would call the whole person approach. We're not going to look at you at just grade, just test scores but we wanna be sure that we have a balanced class, both geographically, racially, in terms of gender. My own alma mater from college is Yale. And when Yale went co-ed, 
uh, there was a lot of conversation about what to do to make sure that women never outnumbered men in the college. Because, and we certainly know this now, 45, almost 50 years later, that girls are better students in high school. So if you just take grades and test scores, you're going to have a disproportionately female class. So this is my, sort of my point to people, which is we use balancing all the time. It's just when it comes to doing something about race discrimination that everybody suddenly finds balance to be so bad, right? They don't want a class that has no athletes. Conversely, they don't want a class that's nothing but athletes. They want people who, who are play music. They want people who are good in science. They want people who are good in English. They want geographic diversity. Some of the best shot you have at getting into the Ivy League is to come from some little Midwestern state like North Dakota or somewhere. Because you can imagine the onslaught of applications that they get from, I don't know, New York or Connecticut or New Jersey. So there's all kinds of balancing that goes on. Um, and that was the university's, both of them, um, uh, defense. And that has been the law. We've never been able to do that in public contracting. Since the Croson case, we have been required to come up with statistical evidence of discrimination as well as anecdotal evidence of discrimination. And the courts have said that, quote unquote, societal discrimination is not enough. So what does that mean? Well, in the beginning, who knew? Um, it's kind of evolved to uh, evidence of discrimination in the markets in which the government operates. So what doesn't count? Discrimination in housing, employment, criminal justice system, um, uh, travel, all these different types of other areas that are not directly related to an agency's contracting activities. So we have this extremely high evidentiary barrier on the contracting side, and we have now since 1989. Higher ed, much lower. So my big concern is that if you can't do it in higher ed, then how on earth are we gonna meet a contracting standard? And so let me turn to some of the cases that have already happened that have caused me to be the Cassandra or Chicken Little or whatever you know, name you want to you know, you give it for the last couple of years. I've been running around telling people this is coming for a while now. So let's talk about the Black farmer cases. And these are the ones that, that really give me the most um, heartburn, I guess you could say. As part of the ARPA, uh, the COVID the COVID legislation. Um, there was a program to provide some loan forgiveness and technical assistance to farms owned by socially and economically disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. And socially and economically disadvantaged referred back to the Small Business Administration Act, which basically means racial and ethnic minorities, Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans. Um, and it wasn't much per farmer. I think it was like $50,000. I mean, in the big picture, it was a lot of money because you know there's, this is the federal government, but um, you know, for any individual farmer, it wasn't that much money. It wasn't like people were gonna go get rich off this program or something. They got sued instantly. I believe there were 13 separate lawsuits filed. This is what I mean about people are really well organized and funded now all across the country by white, farmers who said that they were being discriminated against because they could not participate in this program. What is so distressing is that this record is a trial lawyer's dream. 
To the best of my knowledge, the largest civil rights settlement in history remains that of Black farmers against the United States Department of Agriculture, so against the federal government, which, let us be honest, has been discriminating against Black farmers since the first slaves tilled the land in this country, with slavery, of course, being enforced by the government. So Black farmers have been subject to discrimination for 300 years, practically. Suddenly now we're supposed to, you know, oh, use race neutral measures or whatever. So we had this great record. We had the settlement, we had congressional hearings, we had academic studies. It couldn't get any better than this. And of course, people sued and we lost every single one of those cases. Every single one of them. Um, with particularly distressing uh, language that kept talking about two things. One, that there was no evidence of intentional identified discrimination by the federal government that was recent. And then the second one was that they hadn't used race neutral measures enough to know whether or not we needed to go and do something about this on the basis of race. Neither Can you one of which tell us a little bit more about the race neutral measures. About what race neutral, right? Because it, it's kind of a term of art, really. Um, what we generally mean by race neutral are, are, are uh, approaches that will benefit all businesses or groups, regardless of their status. So for example, in the contracting um, arena, that means things like unbundling contracts into smaller portions, um, making sure you pay on time. My own personal um, uh, favorite for the most important thing an agency can do, get about a program, pay people on time because otherwise it doesn't matter what you did. Um, so those are kind of race neutral. When we say race conscious, we mean things like saying, this program is for black people. Um, so the court said that we, that the feds and it was the, the cases are all styled versus Biden as the president and um, Vizlak as the secretary of agriculture, that they hadn't tried race neutral measures enough. Well, if you've seen any of these statistics about what has happened to the number of black farmers, at one point there was something like 15% of farmers across the country. Now they're down to less than 1%. If we keep waiting on race neutral, there's gonna be nobody left to bother about. So these, these standards are essentially meaning that you really can't do anything for these people on the basis of race. Um, my particular favorite, uh, you, know, you know, greatest tips out of these cases is a case that was filed in, in Texas um, by, the, by a guy named Sid Miller, who was actually the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Texas, but he was suing in his individual capacity, who said that he'd taken one of those cheek swab tests, you know, and, and turns out he's like 2% black. And so he thinks he should be in the program. Now, anybody living in Texas, who you told them Sid Miller was black, they would wonder what drugs you were on. Um, but suddenly now, and then they, may, they take swipes at Elizabeth Warren in the complaint. You know, oh, Elizabeth Warren is Pocahontas, so she gets to be in the program. And they go back to, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, that case from the 1800s that established discrimination and Jim Crow as, as constitutional. So the whole thing reads like a political screed. It doesn't read like a, like a lawyer's document. So that's your clue that this is a political attack essentially, but it was successful. And so the Biden administration, after we lost all those cases, um, threw in the towel and changed the program. 
So the cases are moot for anybody that wants to look them up. You can always email me. I'm happy to send you the file if you can't get on PACER, which is where you find all the federal um, court, court uh, documents. But they threw in the towel and the new program bifurcates the, the fund. Um, it's about $2 billion to set aside for uh, uh, farmers that can prove individually that they were the victims of discrimination before 2021 or 2020, something like that. There's no information about how you're supposed to do that or how somebody just trying to keep their family farm together is supposed to go gather that type of statistical data that would support such a claim. So I say, in effect, I call that one as non-existent. There's about $3 billion that's now open to anybody. So that's your race neutral approach, you know, that can prove that they were hurt by the COVID pandemic. I mean, and like who wasn't, right? So basically they threw in the towel. So that's the black farmer cases. And that's been going on for about two years now. And I've been screaming from the rooftops, people, people pay attention to this. There were a couple other cases. There were the rest, there's the restaurant case. Um, where, again, you may remember in the beginning of the pandemic, it was very large restaurant chains that were taking advantage of all the, the um, PPP loans, you know, like McDonald's and Darden Foods and all these giant companies were getting all the money. So the small restaurants weren't getting any. Well, okay, so Congress stepped in and said, well, what are we going to do for these small, small restaurants? And they came up with this fund. And the only race conscious component of it was who got to get in line first to apply. Not whether you got the money, but there, but that socially and disadvantaged, um, socially and economically disadvantaged restaurant owners were had 21 days to submit their applications, and then the program would be open to everyone. That's all it was. That got struck down. A couple of the states tried COVID relief funds for minority businesses in Oregon. It was for Black businesses specifically. Those got struck down. There are pending cases now against the uh, Small Business Administration's 8A program. Uh, and many years ago, I was an expert for the feds um, and we beat back that challenge. So I sure thought that one had been put to rest, but I was wrong. The Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program for USDOT was sued as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the um, Infrastructure Improvement Act, because it incorporates the DBE program by reference. That got sued instantly. That case got dismissed though, um, but without prejudice because the judge said that they couldn't identify any specific contract yet that they want to bid on. Well, that's something that'll get cured real quick. So, you know, so basically it's not good. And, and in this, this uh, case against the DB program, they went um, uh, uh, venue shopping and they went to the middle district of Florida to get the judge that struck down Biden's mask mandate. He's a Trump appointee, one of these, I call them baby judges, right? And people are barely 40. Um, and federal judges live a long time, a long time. The uh, Federal Court of Appeals judge I clerked for died at 95 on a Monday. And he was set to hear cases that Friday. So 45, I'll be long gone by the time these people you know, retire. So that's where they went um, and she dismissed it, but it's coming back to be sure. So it's a grim, grim time. And my challenge to my fellow minority and women-owned businesses, disadvantaged businesses, is what's your plan B? 
if in fact, eventually these goals programs get struck down, and it won't be tomorrow, but it's not five years from now either. So people need to start asking themselves, if you are highly dependent on goals programs, what is your business plan alternative? And this is where perhaps, you know, in um, maybe you know future podcast, not even as much with me, there are other people I could send you to who do business development stuff, which I don't really do. Uh, but uh, to talk with people or give them some ideas about how to rethink what they're doing. Because my concern is that if there are no goals on contracts, people are not gonna get work. That's certainly what we've seen historically. Uh, we also see, and I'll turn to disparity studies in a second, that agencies that have never had programs then conducted good defensible disparity studies, and then those are some important modifiers there. Um, and institute programs really do see marked improvement and, and quickly if they're serious about it. So if you get a lot of work from goals programs, what is your plan B? Because you need to start thinking about that right now. And the firms I think will take the biggest, quick, quickest hit, I mean, that's a better way to say it, will probably be on the consulting side, on the professional services side. Because if you're a minority engineering firm and you do a lot of sub-consulting work, these big engineering firms, they don't really need you for anything. They have 40, 50,000 employees. There's one out there that I'm told has 80,000 employees. Out of 80,000 people, somebody knows how to do what you do. So what are you going to do? How do we transition firms to do prime work? Which I've been saying for a long time. It's where the money is, it's where the power is, it's where the control over the work is. Um, now, there's certain types of industries you're almost always gonna be a sub. If you do, if you're an MEP for mechanical electrical plumbing, that's usually not gonna be a prime. If you, you know, are a material supplier, usually agencies will buy through a prime. Sometimes they'll buy directly from you. Um, but if you're in the services business, so for example, value-added resellers, I want to know because if the agency doesn't isn't trying to meet goals, why don't they just go buy directly from Dell or IBM or somebody instead of going through you? So uh, that's one reason I'm trying to sound the alarm so much, not so much for the government people, but for the businesses, because that's really always been my focus. You know, these disparity studies and programs, they're not an end in themselves. They're a means to economic empowerment and wealth building for minority and women folks. So I wanna know what are we going to do? And we can't just sit here and wait for the truck to hit us, especially when you can see it coming. So that's why I was so happy when you asked me to talk about this. So that does lead me to disparity studies, but let me talk, stop there. You wanna jump in, questions, thoughts? And that was gonna be my next question. Can you tell us a little bit more, even though it does seem as if you know something can be on the horizon as it relates to disparity studies, but let's talk about what they are and the importance of them. Sure, or what, what up till now has been the importance, because I can close with some thoughts about that. But um, ever since this Crosal case, the courts have said that we have to do all of this research in order to support race and gender conscious contracting programs which is not intuitive to people. I spent a lot of my career talking to elected officials and policy folks, trying to explain to them that there are judges out here who actually somehow think this is all in the past. 
For in the immortal words of Justice John Roberts in striking down Seattle's school desegregation plan, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. One of the more facile comments in a Supreme Court opinion has probably ever been written. Um, but there we have to go and develop all this evidence about what people sort of feel like, why are we going to spend a million dollars to go prove that there's racism? Well, because the federal courts have told us we have to, Myth, full stop. So disparity studies were born to meet this legal test. Um, and they essentially have, well, I'd say, let's say three components, four, well, four, okay. Certainly a solid legal analysis because it is very important that the consultant tell you what he or she thinks the law is. Um, many agencies have gotten in trouble because they get these studies back that are weak. And when they get challenged, um, when the agency gets challenged, because of course nobody actually sues the study consultants, they sue the agency. Um, then the council gets involved and says, oh, we don't think we can go to court and use this to defend you. And now you've got to go explain how you just wasted a half million dollars plus for something people can't use. So it's very important to get the legal framework right. But then the, the, the major evidentiary pieces are statistical evidence of underutilization of minority women-owned firms compared to who is actually available in the marketplace. So you have two basic building blocks of the statistical uh, portion. The first is the agency's utilization broken out for each racial group and by individual industry code. Don't tell me construction. I can't do anything with that. I can't run a program off construction. What kind of construction? Are you building a bridge or are you paving a street? You know, very, very different. But what was the agency's utilization of minorities and women by dollars out of its total contract? So let's, let's just, we'll make up some numbers for ease of conversation that the agency's utilization of MWBEs was in total 10%. Then you, your next building block is who was available to do the work that they actually procured. And let's say that the availability turns out to be 20%. Well, now you have a gap between who was utilized and who was available. So disparity says, I can write you some kind of complicated looking equations, but it really is a very simple concept. And that is how tight is the fit between who was available and who was used? To the extent there's a big enough gap or a disparity and it's negative, that is evidence the courts will allow you to rely on that you have the market failure of discrimination in your contracting area. So simple, you know, I mean, I could draw you on a whiteboard, real kind of simple concepts. The execution is a whole nother story, but that's your basic uh, statistical construct. The other piece of a statistical analysis, especially for agencies that have had programs for many years, so I'm gonna call them legacy programs, like Chicago or Dallas or Austin, Texas, let's say, is that you probably aren't gonna find any big negative gaps because they've been running a program for so long. So what we like to look at is um, a couple Census Bureau databases that model what the world would look like without affirmative action. Because yes, there's a little bit of it on the private sector and some on the public sector, but in the big picture, not much. So if you see disparities in the overall economy, 
That suggests that the reason you don't have them for your agency is because you've been running a pretty good program. Not that discrimination has magically disappeared somewhere. So those are your two types of statistical evidence in a disparity study. We also like to include anecdotal or qualitative evidence. Now the courts have been clear that standing alone anecdotal evidence is not sufficient. You have to have the statistical proof that there's discrimination. I mean, the whole thing is really just crazy, but it's what we got. Um, and that can consist of things like business owner interviews and focus groups. You ask people, tell us about what it's like to be a black business person in this community or to be a woman or whatever. Um, electronic surveys, we do them all electronically. I've been around long enough. We used to mail them out on paper. Um, you can um, look at other types of uh, historical evidence if you can get it. Um, in request for proposals, agencies always toss that in there. And I'm like, to this day, I have never seen that, but in theory, it should be fine. Okay, right. If you find me some good court cases that I can, I can take a look at. Other types of administrative hearings, Title VI complaints, those kind of things. So that's your anecdotal or your qualitative evidence. Then the, the fourth, so first we have legal, second, we have utilization, third, we have availability. Excuse me, so let me, let me back it up. First we have legal, then we have the statistical evidence and that's disparities in your contracting and disparities in the overall economy. Then we have anecdotal or qualitative evidence. And then the last part, which is not mandatory at all, but, but I think going forward, it's gonna be the most important part is actually reviewing the agency's program and its procurement operations. Because we often find that the agency people think that they're just knocking it out of the park and we just run the most wonderful program, blah, 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 blah. Will you actually go and talk to the people they're supposed to be helping? Eh, maybe not so much. So that is a way to get customer feedback, so to speak, about how the program is operating, what could be done that would reduce agency created barriers. And I really wanna stress that because I think one of the reasons that my programs have not worked as well as I would like them to over these decades is because basically what we, and by we, I mean agencies really, because that's mostly my client base, not entirely, but mostly, have done is pointed our fingers at prime vendors and said, you do differently. But there are three parties to this. There's the primes, there's the subs, and there's the agency. And no wonder you're not gonna make as much progress as you could if you only looked at one of the three basic actors. So agencies have got to pivot now to asking themselves, what can you do better to reduce barriers to MWBEs? And really that's the race neutral component. And for years, I kind of poo-pooed that. I was one of those people's like race neutral, whatever. The problem is race. Right? That's like saying the patient needs a triple bypass and, and all we're gonna do is tell him to lay off McDonald's. Well, he should probably lay off McDonald's and the martinis too, but he needs a bypass. And racism is a disease that is endemic in my view in this country, in this culture, in our history that needs the equivalent of a quadruple bypass. So I was like race, race neutral, fine, whatever. Go do all that, but give me my goals because goals will work. Well, if I can't have goals, no more martinis for you. So um, agencies are in charge of the martini spigot. I hadn't thought about that before, but I kind of like that. 
Um, you got to turn it off. Uh, and so do you pay on time? The single biggest complaint we hear from everybody who does government work is that they don't pay on time. And it's true. I have some clients that are six months all the time paying me. I can handle the float because basically all we pay for is time. But if I were a construction company and I had union health and welfare, you know, pension payments to make, if I had to pay suppliers, if I had to make payroll every week, my own clients would have put me out of business 25 years ago. And in fact, for those of you who come to my wonderful hometown and love of Chicago, greatest city in the world, if you've been there, you've seen our beautiful Bean and Millennium Park and all that, that project took out the biggest black contractor and the biggest black engineering firm in Chicago. They are both gone behind working on Millennium Park because the city of Chicago didn't pay. And when I say pay, I mean, I'm talking 180, 240 days. So if you're an agency and you aren't paying net at least 45, you've got to clean up your own act. Because when there aren't goals, how are people gonna manage? So the program review is a really important and I think increasingly important piece of a disparity study because it's really where you're gonna get feedback about how does that work? Experience requirements. Do you really need to have designed 10 firehouses to do the 11th? Really? One of my own favorites is the experience of the firm. So if I had spent, I don't know, 20 years in a big firm, I was only there for a hot minute, um, but let's say I had, and I still, and I knew what I knew when I, 20 years out, and I decided to start my own firm. Did I suddenly forget everything I knew? No, but my new firms would not be held to have any experience because the firm didn't. Why aren't we looking at the principals and their experience too, especially for new businesses? How else are they going to start a business? So it's stuff like this. Um, you can't get rid of bonding. We can have a conversation about that. People always well, what are we going to do about bonding? Usually there's a state bond construction act. And no, you aren't going to change that. And you probably don't want to because when the building falls down or the contractor walks away, the taxpayers cannot be left holding the bag. So bonding is really necessary. And there are different kinds of bonds and whatnot. So the program review and how to make you run a better agency is a critical piece of a disparity study. And to a point that you started with, why should MWBs participate? Because if the agency doesn't have a really good disparity study, under existing law as it is this afternoon, you're gonna lose. So an example relatively recently, Shelby County, Tennessee which is Memphis. So can we all just pause and contemplate Memphis in the history of the civil rights movement? Well, they had a really weak study, not one of mine, I'm gonna tell you, and um, they got sued by the Memphis Mechanical Contractors Association. And outside trial counsel determined that the study was not adequate to defend the program. So they settled, they paid the plaintiffs over $350,000 in legal fees, and they dropped the program, Memphis. So now they're back, you know, trying to get it back together and get a new study, which, which we aren't doing either, by the way. So I have no, no, no dog in this one. But um, 
It's a really recent example of how a poor quality disparity study in some ways is worse than none. Because if you didn't do anything, you might be able to get the judge to give you a little bit of time to go pull something together. But if you've got a weak study, it's really a problem. And one of the things that can materially contribute to the weakness of a study is the weak anecdotal information. And that's where the minority business community comes in. People, when you get the surveys, respond, please, please fill them out. Go to the, to the focus groups. I know it's not directly related to putting you know, work on your table. I get that. Believe me, I get that. But if you don't do it and they don't have anything to work with, then you're not going to have a program. So you have to think of it as not you're doing your good civic duty, but you're doing what you need to do to protect yourselves and your business and your employees and your families as best we can. Um, you know, we have an entire team of people that does something but call people up and beg them to come to focus groups and beg them to you know, submit these surveys. Um, and it can be very frustrating. Uh, you know, I mean, if we get a 20% response rate on the surveys overall, I'm thrilled. We really should be more like 80% if minority businesses understood why this is important. So shows like yours that get that word out, I think are, are really critical. Now, you know, depending on what the courts do, maybe no reason to go spend a half a million to $2 million on a study because capacity building, I think is the, that and race neutral measures are the wave of the future. Um, Completely agree with that statement. Capacity building has to be at the top of the list for a successful and effective program and just, be able to build up those businesses in that community as well. So I think no, that no is question. I mean, I I'm telling my own clients now, mm -hmm. we're not going to do any more studies, or at least not in the not for the foreseeable future, because right now I'm not sure that's a good use of money. So if you've got five, six hundred thousand dollars to spend, I would much rather that you spent it on a really kick butt capacity building program than with me. So people know I must mean this because I'm telling you not to hire us. I'm telling you to go hire some other consultants, which when we don't do that, I do not do capacity building. Um, there are, a, there are a, a few good programs out there. Los Angeles World Airports, for example, has an excellent program. The Illinois Tollway has an excellent program, but they're expensive because part of the key is as much one-on-one -on -one counseling as anybody can afford. Because, you know, I mean, we can put anything up on the web. I mean, you can read a video about how to do a business plan. But what you really need is somebody to sit with you and be your coach, hook you up with other professionals. The Missouri Department of Transportation, before Missouri went straight right, um, used to have a, a, what I thought was a great component to their supportive services program, which is that they had construction lawyers and construction accountants who would work with these businesses for very low fees. People need to pay something because people only value what they pay for. But you know, the state was subsidizing the fees and these were lawyers and accountants who really believed in trying to help these firms and they would do a lot of it essentially pro bono. It was key because MB, the people will sign anything. I got a client right now and I don't do much of this. This is partly why it's too frustrating who signed a contract that gives him basically no rights at all. I'm like, cool. did, did anybody read this? No, they're so grateful to get the work. 
that they'll sign anything. And so being taught how to read contract documents, what to look for, how to work with risk management, what, is it, what kind of package do you need to go to a surety to be successful? These are the elements that our folks lack because they're not part of that network. I'm not even kind of an old boys club because one, I'm not so sure it's so old in a lot of industries and it's not all boys, but what it is is a network of support. I'm a lawyer, I come from a family of lawyers. My father was a lawyer. Everybody I knew was a lawyer, a teacher, or a preacher. That's all we know how to do in this family and pilots. Um, so what else was I gonna do? I know how to do anything. If I've been to come from a family of doctors, I'd probably be a doctor. People need somebody to teach them how to do things. And our folks particularly lack that generational intellectual wealth. We talk about building generational wealth. I'm more interested in building intellectual generational wealth because that's easier to pass down. Once you learned it, you nobody can take it from you. So, you know, I like mentoring younger lawyers, talk about what it means to be out here, especially as a businesswoman in the world and, you know, making it on your own here. Um, that's what I'm really interested in these days is that capacity building and that Absolutely. mentoring. To and me, that's what we started that's to what we need. And shift our business model. So that's yes. what we do now, capacity building and leveraging technology to do that because that having that one-to-one -one hand holding is an important component of it, but you also need to make sure that these business owners are putting some skin in the game at the same time. Oh, well. oh, but that's why I'm saying oh. no, 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 truly pro bono work. Yeah. So they're going to charge you $75 an hour, which still sounds like a lot of money, but not mm -hmm. if the guy's standard rate six fifty. It's not. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, that's important. And I, I love that you mentioned the technology piece. Yes. Because I am absolutely convinced that what helps small businesses is technology. Technology is your friend. It's not your enemy. If you have nothing but an AOL address, we need to have a talk. Because nobody talk. is going to take you seriously, including me. Right? So how do we get our folks up to speed? So I'll give you an example, actually, um, that came up recently. Many large general contractors no longer maintain plan rooms physical rooms, especially that they died, whatever was left, COVID came, done. And nobody going in somebody's room and looking at things for several hours, done. So people have now put all of their, their plans, the specs, everything is now cloud-based. I have had some minority contractors tell me, well, he still gotta make those plans available to me, blah, blah, blah. I think this is wrong-headed thinking. Because that means you got to get in your truck, you got to drive down there, you got to park, you got to make copies, you got to come home, you got to spread them out. So five hours at least is gone out of your day, maybe longer if it's a somewhat complicated job that you could have sat there by bigger monitors. What you saved in gas, you can do it. Download that stuff. Learn how to use those tools, especially because if we lose goals, who are these people going to want to work with? then they're not going to want to work with some little guy who needs his hand held like that. And I don't blame them because it costs them money. So if you make yourself marketable, if you get uh, with whatever the technology is in your industry, I mean, lawyers are notoriously you know, tech averse. I still want word perfect, which you look too young to probably even remember was a, was a word processing program from a long time ago that worked much better than word, but whatever. Um, you've got to get in front of whatever your industry 
is using. Go to those classes, you know, watch the videos, learn how to do this stuff so that you are a value added partner to the people you wanna work with, not a drag and a problem. And uh, it's a minority contractor we have to do business with. And that's true if the Supreme Court shows up on June 29th and says, hooray, we love affirmative action and we finally get to do something. That will still be true because you're gonna lose out to the other black business that did that. So I love this. And young people I think are much more open to this, at least I hope so. <clears throat> you really can't do business anymore with just a cell phone. Although you kind of, depends what you do. <laughs> depends what you do. We do really, it's always joking about, you know, my, my wife runs this, this huge little empire with, uh, you know, nothing but some computers and a cell phone and, and, a, and a staff. Um, but that's because we, what we do is really niche and we're a service business. But and I think the idea now of, you know, back in the day, having this huge company with, you know, four different office spaces, like we want to be as lean as possible so that way we don't have as much money going out. So we do the same thing. My entire team is remote. And yes. if you see me online, I am here in this office. <laughs> so exactly. So there's you know, not a lot of good came out of the pandemic, mm -hmm. but I do think this is a value that people figured out they didn't need to be sitting in offices all the time. I started this law firm in 1994. I'm sorry, excuse me. So we're almost 30 years old. I have worked from home the entire time. Back when nobody did that. That's because I had no money. I mean, like no money. Um, I had a lot of ramen noodles for a while. To this day, I don't like noodles. Um, so my theory is that's why I have such high blood pressure is because of all that sodium and that stuff. But you could buy 15 of them for a dollar. And I was watching every single dollar. So I had no money. So I couldn't get an office. And I used to hide it from people, you know, at a post office address and all that. Shoot, now, normally you'd see all kinds of critters walking back and forth here, but I, I've locked them out. And I think the thing too for MWBEs is old adage, it's not what you made, it's what you kept. It's not what you make, it's what you keep. If you don't lease the car for business, if you aren't really driving anywhere for business, ask yourself, do I need this? Especially when you're starting out. I would tell anybody wanting to do government work, you know, and that's our focus today. You need at least a year's worth of income. And I do mean cash in the bank before you start taking on government contracts. It may take them three or four months to go through the award process. And you might not get a notice to proceed for another 8, 12, 16 weeks. I have some contracts. Now we are 18 months behind schedule. So you've got to have that cushion. Otherwise, don't do it. You know, go look in some other places. You know, and here's a pitch for and look to the private sector for work. You know, in some ways, it's a lot easier. They pay better usually. Um, they're usually more profitable. The good thing about the government is the check always clears. It might take you six months to get it, but when it shows up, it's good. So, you know, a good healthy mix, but that's part of a good business plan. What portion of my work do I want to be private sector? What are my real markets? A lot of people just go, I want to start a business. And I always want to know, why is that? Why do you want to do that? It is a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Um, and the fact that you've done so well and you've gotten this far really is a testament to you. I know 
that there are days when you think, oh, Lord, please, Jesus, help me here. I don't know that I'm going to make it. Um, <laughs> but, yes. but you have and you are. But people need to really know what the plan is. And it can't just be, I want to work for myself. Because one of the things I tell young lawyers who are like, oh, I want to own my own firm like you. And I'm saying, you want to work 60 to 70 hours a week for the next 30 years? Because that's what it is. That's what it is. Just know that there's nobody to look at. All you, baby. It's all you. So if that means you're going to stay up all night, I'm too old to pull all-nighters now. So I try to take projects that could possibly require such a thing. Um, you know, but it, you have to be passionate, you have to be committed, you have to be patient, uh, you have to be strategic about what you do. And to the extent that these government programs, MWBE, DBE, HUB, SBE, SBA, SBDOB, the whole soup, um, help you, that's great. But know what the plan is. I see way too many people we're really good at the skill set, but have not prepared them for the business skill set. Um, so seek out those resources. They're there. Um, I particular, I'm particularly fond, if they're good, of the procurement technical assistance centers. Um, some places they're kind of weak. Some places they're great. Their services are free. You know, uh, join your, your local trade associations. That's another thing. People, I don't want to go deal with all those races, blah, 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 which may all be true that they are. Okay. I'm not saying they aren't, but I'm saying, but they're the door through which you're going to need to walk. So get walking. Um, you know, do you want to complain or do you want to succeed? You can't really do both. I vote for success. And then once you get to a certain point, then you can complain more, okay? I complain a lot now. Um, but in the beginning, I can complain so much. Um, but anyway, so that, that's my thoughts about disparity studies, why they're important. You know, if people are doing them in your community, do participate. Um, know that these changes are coming and prepare, prepare, prepare. Listen to podcasts, video casts, I guess, or maybe you call them like this. Um, seek out people who can help you uh, and never be afraid to tell somebody you don't know something. My fourth grade teacher said, the late Mrs. Martin, best teacher I ever had, I didn't exactly slum it after that, told me that the uh, only stupid question is the one you didn't ask. So ask. And uh, most of us like to be asked, you know? For like, I mean, I'm wind up talking about this for another two hours if you let me, but you're not. And um, but 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 go out, go ask people to help you. Don't be shy, don't be ashamed. Nobody knows everything. Um, and I think that's especially can be hard, especially for, for sisters, for black women, because we are told all the time we have to be so strong, we have to be so much better and faster and smarter than everybody else. And that's all true. So it can be hard for us, I think, to ask for help. But ask, they can call you. <laughs> you know That's always been one of those things, just asking for help. But this has been such an amazing episode. Uh, you have people in the comments saying, thank you for this information. It's awesome. Like just agreeing. That's so true to hear some of the things that you are saying. And it's really eye-opening to hear a lot more about what's going on in, you know, 
in the world right now. Uh, but we really appreciate it. And you I'm will definitely receive another email for us to be All back right. on the yeah, show. After, after we get the, the decision, then maybe let's come back on and give me a couple of days to, to digest the thing. Yes. Um, and someone said, I just got in and I'm already getting some of the best advice I've gotten. So that's so okay. good. <laughs> All right. Good, good. Well, thanks, everybody. Really enjoyed it. Um, You know, be in touch if I can help you. I will. And thank you so much, everyone who's taking uh, taking the time out to watch this on YouTube right now. We appreciate the engagement. Uh, we appreciate the questions that you dropped in the chat as well. Um, don't forget to like this video and definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel and check us out on um, Spotify, iTunes, all of the different areas where you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you all in the next episode. All right. Peace.